Well, good afternoon, Established. Thanks so much for having me uh, to come and share God's Word with you and to join in with the More Than Conquerors, which is the series going through Romans at the moment, and it's a great privilege to be able to share with you. I'm going to start today by asking a question that's been asked by many, many people down through the centuries, but particularly since the advent of psychology. And that question is, what makes us who we are? Or, to put it in their terms, are we a product of nature or nurture? Is it genetics or environment that determines who we are? The easiest way to find this on Google is to just type in, are serial killers born or made? Is it something that's part of their cerebral cortex, part of their brain wiring that makes them snap and are willing to take a life and many lives? Or is it their upbringing? Is it their parents? Is it the social setting of which they're in? Which side of the fence might you be on? Do you think it's almost predetermined genetically or is it all in an environment? Now, psychology in general wants to fall down on the side of environment because it tells a much better story. When it's the environment, we can change the environment, particularly if we think that most inequities in this world, most of the frustrations in this world come from race or class or perhaps our gender or family. Because all of these things, if they're constructed, can be deconstructed and then put back together in a way that makes it equal for everybody. So environment is the, the answer that people want because genetics tends to tell an awful story. Whenever it takes the ascendancy, it generally turns out that those who have genes which are unacceptable or somehow lower class, they tend to suffer what we might call genocide or gene-ocide, as you might imagine. And so if there's anyone who advocates genetics these days, they're often called Nazis because they obviously see there's two types of human beings, those who thrive and those who don't, irrespective of their environment. And that's really hard for us to hear if we believe that it's genetics. And so there's this scientific debate going on. It's a really interesting one. And perhaps, as most people, you come down to saying, well, it's a little bit of both. You know, genetically, I'm not able to run 100 metres in under 10 seconds. That's just impossible for me. But if I had the right environment, the right food, the right training, I might get down to 12 seconds, maybe, or 11 if I'm really, really, really good. But I'm never going to be one of those sub-10 runners because I simply am not built that way. That's part of the way that we can look at the limitations of both of them. Both the environment can only be maximised to a certain extent and our genetics really work like an outside bubble beyond which we cannot go. Although people are often trying to transcend that bubble as well to be whoever they want to be. And that's part of the world that we live in. We want to be who we want to be. But if you're anything like me, you're probably frustrated because we don't always turn out. In fact, I would say we never turn out how we might have imagined ourselves to be. No one imagines themselves to be uh, poor at hygiene or poor at their health or poor at food choices, but that happens all the time. There are those who don't choose necessarily to end up in a fairly straightforward job. They may have had dreams of other things, but the reality is they have a nine to five job. It puts food on the table, it puts a roof over their head, it provides, but it's not fulfilling. It's not what they feel like they were made to be, made to do. And that's frustrating for everyone. And I wonder if that's something that gets you. Particularly, I know a lot of you are young adults just sort of making your way in the world and, and you may still have the dreams of what I will be and what I could be and if I had the right situations and the, the right 
breakthroughs and opportunities and, and uh, you know, those possibilities that might come up and to take them, to seize them and to be able to, to be what I want to be and to go in the direction I want to go. But it doesn't always work out that way. And I wonder if you are frustrated at who you are because the Bible reading that was given to us today is a picture of a man, Paul, who is struggling with who he is, struggling with who he has turned out to be, which is nothing like how he had imagined it when he was younger. He had imagined that he would live a great life, a good life, a life that would be respected, and yet he knows from experience that that's not how it turned out for him. And so the question we really want to ask is not what makes us who we are, but who am I right now? Paul asked that question. It's a question about our identity. What makes us, us? And if you read through the passage, Paul says, I haven't got a clue who I'm meant to be in some ways. Look at verse 14. He says, I don't understand. This is talking about his own life here. I don't understand. There's confusion about life. The second thing that he says in verse 15 is that he hates himself for some of the things that he does. He hates what he does. No one goes out to hate what they do, but sometimes, if you're honest, there are things I do that I hate that I did those things. Could have been a word, could have been an action, could have been a thought. These are the things that make us question our identity. Verse 18, Paul says he feels powerless. He says, I want to do good, but I can't carry it out. Just don't have the capacity, don't have the capability, don't have the, uh, the power to do what I want to do. I'm powerless. As much as I know what is right, I'm not able. He also says in verse 20 that he feels like it's not he that actually is controlling his life. He feels that in some ways he's a prisoner of sorts. He's controlled. He's not in charge of what's going on for him. And maybe you felt like that too. Maybe not only have you understood the confusion that Paul has and hate some of the things that you do, not only may you feel powerless to change who you are or what you're becoming, You also feel like you're controlled, like there's something that battles within you that actually is bringing you to a place that you don't want to go, like getting on a train and and realising it's going in the wrong direction, but there's no stops and you you find that you're just headlong towards a, a destination that you didn't choose. Paul also says in verse 23, he says, there's this, this something at work in me that wages war and he says, it actually makes me a prisoner. Paul feels trapped feels trapped in the life that he has, that there's no way of breaking free of any constraints. And it wouldn't matter about the environment or the genetics. It wouldn't matter about whether it was nature or nurture. He says there's something else, something more fundamental that makes me feel like I'm trapped, that I'm a POW and that there's nothing that I can do about it. And so it's not a big surprise that when he gets to verse 24, he says, what a wretched man I am. Paul gives in to despair. He simply says, this is the way that it is. This is the way that it's always been for me. And even now, as a follower of Jesus, I experience these things. I experience the confusion. I experience the powerlessness. I feel controlled and I feel trapped. I feel like I am owned, to use that fancy word, which is verse 14 and 25. You know, that something owns you. Uh, Verse 14 and 25 says, a slave to sin and sold into this situation. So are we frustrated at who we are? I love the way that Paul talks about it. Even though it's confusing, it sounds a little bit like a Dr. Zeus book when you read it. I do what I do not want to do and I don't do it and I do and I don't. It gets very confusing. But 
perhaps the easiest way for us is to see what I think would be the summary of what he's trying to say in verse 21. He says, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. That's Paul's experience. And I believe it would be your experience. It's certainly my experience that I want to do good. But I find that evil's right there. You know, the Bible sometimes pictures evil as crouching at the door. That as soon as you open it to head into a situation, it's right there and it springs its trap. And suddenly you're doing things you would never have dreamed of doing. This picture that Paul has of this battle within, of feeling like a prisoner, of wanting to do good as a principle, but finding that evil's right there beside him. That picture reminds me that war is one of the theatres where we see this battle that goes on. And we see it on the external uh, ways of battle with something like Saving Private Ryan, which just went through the horror of physical violence and the things that could be done to another person as they fought across the battlefields of Europe. At the same time as that movie came out, there was another movie which really investigated the psychological aspects of war, how young men could turn into monsters. And it's called The Thin Red Line, and its main protagonist, Private Wit, uh, played by Jim Caviezel, he is the one who narrates a lot of the action, and he talks about this loss from being people who he thought were good to being people who discovered that there was evil residing within. And this is what he says. He says, we were a family. How did it break and come apart so that now we're turned against each other, each standing in the other's light? How did we lose that good that was given us? Let it slip away, scattered it, careless. What's keeping us from reaching out, touching the glory? A little bit later in the film, he's watching in horror as one of his compatriots is collecting souvenirs, uh, the war, uh, a terrible pastime of uh, taking the ears of fallen foes. He says, this great evil, where's it come from? How did it steal itself into the world? What seed and what root did it grow from? Who's doing this? Who's killing us, rubbing us of life and light, mocking us with the sight of what we might have known? Does our ruin benefit the earth? Does it help the grass to grow? the sun to shine. Is this darkness in you too? Have you passed through this night? Just some sobering pictures of what it looks like to discover that there is evil within when it's the last thing that you had ever expected. But there are a couple of things that are said in that that I really love. There's this picture of I've lost something and I'm looking for it, but I can't reach it. And I'm reaching out to touch it. I want to touch, he calls it the glory. I want to touch the glory, but I, I'm prevented from doing so. It's been stolen. Somehow it's been scattered and lost and I, I can't reach it. And then in that second uh, quote, he says, it's, it's mocking us. It's mocking us, showing us something that we might have been. These are very powerful images of what it, must have felt like for Paul to write this passage of seeing what I want to do, seeing what I want to be, but then having this interference. And is there a life that I'm meant to be? Because Paul says there is a life that he wants. There's a life of good. There's a life of delight, a life of wonder, a life of knowing that I'm living exactly as I'm meant to be. Paul says there is a life that you and I are meant to have. It's not about nature or nurture necessarily, but it's actually a life that's revealed. 
It's the revelation of life. And he says it's, it's a comprehensive picture of individual and social and civic existence, how we live as individuals, how we live as families, how we live as a society, how we live within the environment of which we are a part. How do we care for it? How do we love the things around us as well as the people? Paul says it in verse 22. He says, in my inner life, I delight in God's law. For Paul, Torah, which is the law that he's talking about, Torah describes every aspect of life from the very mundane through to the very complicated. He says, all of life, of how I'm meant to live, is actually shown and revealed by God himself, God's law. He says, it's from God, verse 14, it's spiritual. He says, it is good, in verse 16. In 22, he says, it's a delight. And in verse 25, he says, it's a kind master. It's to be obeyed. But you might think, hang on a second, why God's law? Why would the law of God, why would Torah, as Paul has, be the way that I would measure about whether my life is the way I want to be? How about, and you might say this, how about you do you and I'll do me? And I'm not going to have those kind of constraints on what my life ought to look like. I'm going to set my own standards of what life's meant to be because I'm free of those. In fact, some people would argue it's that law itself which has actually made some of the inequity and the inequality and the, the differences between people. It hasn't promoted the unity and harmony and the wonder that we would love. It's actually promoted evil. So why would I take on God's law when it's had so many uh, bad press uh, across the years? Well, what I would say is that if you are someone who's free of any constraints and just living the life that you think you want to live, I'm going to just ask a very Dr. Phil question. You know Dr. Phil? the one who is uh, a psychologist, he kind of works out what people are doing and he always has this one question. The one question is, if you're a, a person who lives your own life your own way, he says, how's it working out for you? That's the question that he asks. And my suggestion would be that it doesn't work out however you want it to be, no matter if there's a law or no law, whatever constraints or freedoms you give yourself. I have a feeling... In fact, I know for sure that you would have transgressed those. You know, you can imagine these days that, and I'm sure it could be made, although I wouldn't want it to be made, uh, a mobile app, whether it's app, you know, from the App Store or for Apple or for Android, but uh, a mobile app that went with you, because I'm sure your phone, like mine, is often glued to my hand. It goes wherever I go. But it's a special app that only records the things that we say about other people, the judgments that we make about other people or the assessments we make of behaviour. What I would suggest and what uh, Francis Schaeffer a long time ago said is that you have no consideration for God's law. If you have no consideration for any other constraints from anywhere, whatever ones you put upon yourself that enable you to make judgments about other people negatively, you'll discover that you do them yourself. That you can't keep your own standards. You can't keep your own way of life that you wanted it to be you'll have and experience the same frustration that Paul has here, whether you believe that God has revealed himself in Torah or whether you just live your own way and you do you. Whichever way it is, that frustration is still there. Paul is really describing a universal human experience, but he believes that the experience that you and I are meant to have, the life that we are meant to have, is revealed by God. There is a life that we should have. And even as a Christian, Paul finds it difficult to live that way in his own strength. He starts in verse 14 and he says, I am. It's a really strong statement about, I am one of these people who struggles. 
And at the end, he says, and I myself am one of them. Paul doesn't eliminate himself from this group of people who struggle with sin and evil. He's just with us. He's right in the trenches. He himself has this daily experience that you and I have as well. So what is it that prevents this life? The life that God describes in Torah, but the life that you might even want. What's preventing you from living the way that you want to live? Well, the passage uses a number of descriptions. Verse 14, verse 18, verse 25, Paul calls it the sinful nature. It's literally the word sarkinos, which is the word for flesh. But thankfully, the the translators of this version of the Bible didn't say flesh because they don't want to give the very wrong impression that somehow body and materiality is bad and spirit and soul are good. That's not at all what Paul's saying. Paul's saying there is something about being an embodied human being, body, soul and spirit, which has these flaws that he's talking about, this sinful nature, which is a shorthand way of saying everything that works against how God made us. That's his picture of the sinful nature. It's literally the fleshly living in opposition to God. He also calls this thing internally sin. It's a word that doesn't get a lot of press these days. But sin is something that is defined as a rebellion. It's more of an attitude than an action, really. It's the attitude of picking our own way of life and even then failing to attain it. And so Paul describes sin as this very unwelcome house guest. It's kind of like the couch surfer that never leaves. In verse 17 and verse 20 and 23, it's sin that lives in me, something that I want to get rid of, but I can't. It's stuck. And in the end, he says, really, it's evil that lives within me because that's the actions of our sin, verses 19 and 21. Paul says there is something that prevents us from living the life we're meant to. It's something that we have. In fact, we've been sold into it. And that's a a very obscure reference to the time when, if you've heard the story of the garden, when Adam and Eve turned their back on God and decided that they would choose the rules. But as the devil suggested, you get to choose what's right and wrong. And so they did. And even though they know what right and wrong is, they don't have the ability to do the right and avoid the wrong, just like you and me. And we've been sold into that situation That's preventing us from the life that God wants for us, the life that we ought to live. And so it's no wonder that when we get to the end of this passage in verse 24, Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He's simply referencing there that it's the reason for our death is our rebellion against God and we can't control it internally. It flows over into evil actions or thoughts and intentions. There's nothing we can do. He uses this picture that we're prisoners to it. We're prisoners of war. And it's possible that Paul here is alluding to what was an horrific practice done by conquerors, particularly towards the north where the Visigoths and, and the Germans particularly were. But between uh, that, that northern European aspect where uh, they used to have people who had been killed in battle uh, and the survivors, the prisoners of war, were then strapped to one of those who had been killed. And often the conquerors would do it with someone who was part of their family. And they would uh, strap them uh, hand to hand, feet to feet, back to back. And the assumption and uh, conclusion that was reached was, while they are unable to free themselves, the rot and decay of the dead body starts to infect the living body. It's a horrific way to die. 
but essentially that person would eventually die of septicemia or uh, being eaten uh, away in some way. But there's this terrible picture about a body of death that we can't get rid of, that corrupts us from within and that will always lead eventually to our death. That's the prisoner of war picture that I think Paul may have well had in mind when he did this. So if that's the life that we're prevented from, how on earth am I going to be set free? How am I going to be set free? You know, the first thing that I thought of when I heard this was I thought of that terrible song by Whitney Houston and and covered by Mariah and a lot of wannabes on Australia's Got Talent and those kind of shows. It's the song called Hero. And it says, you know, we're stuck in this terrible place and then a hero comes along to give you the strength to carry on. But as you read through that song, it says, guess what? You'll find that the hero is is within you. It's your own capacity. You can make the change you need. You can be the change that you want to be. But Paul's already said that doesn't work, no matter how hard he tries. It doesn't come from within. Paul asked the question, who will rescue me? Who will deliver? We do need a hero, but it's not going to come from inside ourselves. It's not going to come from getting down and, and working really hard at it because we're trapped. We'll always be confused. We'll have that self-hate, that powerlessness, that despair, that feeling like we're slaves to ourselves because we can still, no matter how hard we try, we're not able to do what he asks. Paul has understood something about God that a lot of people don't. He understands that God doesn't grade us on a curve. You know the bell curve that they use for university, a certain number of people get a high distinction, certain number of people fail and everyone else is kind of in the middle and they use that to spread out the people. Uh, When I did psychology at university, that's exactly how they used it, the bell curve as it's called. And so you could have got a really great mark, but because it wasn't as good as others, you ended up with a credit or a pass rather than a distinction or, or so on. God doesn't grade us like that. God doesn't look at our lives and go, I know everyone's having a battle. I know it's hard for everyone. This person's done really well. They've done some good. Of course, evil has turned up, but they've done pretty well. And those people over there have done terrible. That's not the way that Paul understood how God would look at our life. He understood from Isaiah that whatever we do, even the best things that we do, when we hand them to God, it's like sharing a a used face mask, to be honest. It's like sharing a dirty hanky. I don't know if you ever had that as a kid. I certainly did, where my dad would go, wipe your nose, here, use my hanky. And you think, I don't want to use that thing because I know where it's been, I know you've been using it and I don't want to go there. That's the kind of picture really that Paul has, that even the best that we have is like a snot-filled rag. So where do we go? Paul gives us the answer in the last verse almost. He says, thanks be to God, there is one who can deliver us and his name is Jesus Christ our Lord. But what qualifies him? What qualifies him to be able to deliver us in this way. How will that happen? Well, chapter 8 is going to explain in really great detail as we go through uh, how we can be more than conquerors because it sounds like we're losing the battle in this chapter. How we can be more than conquerors, it's not going to be through my efforts. It's only going to be through the efforts of Jesus on my behalf who then works in me. Paul says, there's no good in me. He says, but through Jesus, I can be delivered and I can actually be set free. I can be rescued. What qualifies Jesus to do that for us? Well, if we read through Romans, we'd see that he's eminently qualified, that he comes from God himself, and that he took on 
our very nature, our very flesh. But unlike you and me, he had no evil that was within. He was able to be tempted to evil, and he certainly uh, was given opportunity to do evil, but he always did what God always wanted. The life that he lived is the life that you and I are meant to have. If we look at his life, we can see a picture of the perfect life, a life governed by God's law from the very beginning through to the very end. And yet Jesus, as we've already been told in Romans, has given that life over, that he's handed it back to God in death. Why would he do that? Well, see, this is the problem. If you want to be delivered, if you want to be rescued, always has to be a price. There's a price for being set free. You know, either you serve the term for the things that put you in jail or someone else pays. Perhaps you've been bailed out. I'm not sure. I know a few friends who have been bailed out for doing wrong things. But you either pay it yourself or someone will deliver you out from it. And when the term is served, when you do your five years or six years for something that you may have done in prison, you then walk free because it's been paid for. Paul here says, all of those things that I've done, I can't pay for them myself. Thanks be to God. Jesus is the one who delivers us because he pays the price. He takes all of the penalty. He serves the prison term. And once he's served that prison term, he is then free. He sets you and I free. And it doesn't have to be paid for again. See, this is the beauty of the Gospels. The beauty of the good news that we have is that no matter how badly we've done or even how well we've done, Jesus is the one who takes that penalty and who delivers us from this body of death. And we know what that looks like in the future, not simply because Jesus died on the cross, but because he rose again. That's the life that is waiting for you and I. And God tells us that the power that was at work in bringing Jesus to life is the same power at work within us. Not something that I can do, not something that I can, can uh, I guess, uh, discover for myself, but something that God does in me that brings me to life and to freedom. So I don't have the confusion as I usually do. I don't have that self-hate because all of that has been paid for. All of it has been rescued from. That's what qualifies Jesus. His life and his death, his resurrection, the guarantee that God accepts what he's done. I trust that that is your life. And if you are someone who wonders why I can do the things that I do, which I don't want to do, this passage gives us hope. It tells us the reality. I love that it's so real and earthy and basically quite violent, really, when you think about it. There's war and rage and attack. That's the internal battle. But it also gives us the answer of how we can be set free. And that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. I trust that encourages you. I trust that this is an experience that maybe you've had or still having. But I would say, if it is, then look to Jesus, for he is the only one who can truly set you free. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you and praise you for Jesus. This condition of having a battle that goes on inside us will continue until the day we die. But we thank you that Jesus is able to change that life to bring us into fellowship with you so that we can do what you want us to do, not in our own power, there's no good in us, but the good of Jesus that works in us by your spirit. Help us to be people who can celebrate what you've done, 
And then, Father, when anyone asks, why do you think you're a Christian when you do bad things? We can say, you don't even know the half of what we've done. But Jesus knows and has paid for it. Father, help us to live as free as those who've been rescued and delivered. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.